Christmas theme. Uh, I want you to come with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll read these familiar scriptures that you'll find in uh, many uh, Christmas cards at this time of the year. Isaiah chapter 9, uh, reading from verse 6. <coughs> Excuse me. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The time, December 2012, the place, Israel, the Middle East. Once again, the tiny little nation of Israel is at the center of world's attention. After Hamas, one of her bitter enemies, has unleashed 10,000 rockets in less than a decade. And Israel responds. And what nation wouldn't respond to that provocation? And as soon as she responds, then she finds herself in the middle of a firestorm of criticism and condemnation from the world's leaders and even from the United Nations. On top of that, the president of Iran, he has sworn publicly to wipe Israel off the map. He is one of the suppliers to Hamas of rockets that are indiscriminately fired into Israel. He's a Holocaust denier and said that it was a Zionist plot that never actually took place. Egypt and Libya have fallen to the Muslim Brotherhood, and it looks as if Syria possibly, probably, is heading in the same direction. The Muslim Brotherhood, as you can imagine, is no friend of Israel. President Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, uh, he has said... Uh, that Iran will strike Israel with a nuclear weapon. And they are literally on the verge of nuclear capability. And so he has threatened first strike. And he has given Western leaders uh, time and space to negotiate. And for all the negotiations that has been intensely going on, uh, the president of Iran has met that with, uh, well, he has totally ignored it and he is going full steam ahead to produce nuclear weapons. So right now, in December 2012, the Middle East in general, Israel in particular, is perhaps only weeks away, maybe days away for all we know, uh, from Israel launching a first strike against Iran. And if that does happen, and the likelihood is great that it will, then there's every possibility that America and Russia and China uh, will be dragged into this conflagration uh, 
in the Middle East and Israel. And so times is difficult. And this Christmas time we're coming closer to a major cataclysmic event in the Middle East. Pray that it won't happen. But we're literally on the verge of that great possibility. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this. But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. And then Isaiah 9 and 7 that we just read. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice. And yet here we are thousands of years later after these prophecies it would seem an impossible dream. Israel is constantly on a war footing. It is daily, even this day, is being bombarded with rockets all over northern Israel, where people has 17 seconds to run to safety. And that includes schools and children and playgroups. The Arab nations that surround her are in turmoil, constantly in a state of ferment. Political instability abounds. Dictators are being deposed, uh, but in their place is some other ghastly regime. And so that is the situation. So the question is, did Isaiah and Micah get it wrong? If you look at things through the natural eye, uh, there doesn't seem to be any sign whatsoever of nations or rulers of kingdoms or governments acknowledging the kingship and the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ that these prophets said would happen. But thank God that we walk by faith and not by sight. Thank God, Peter says, that we have a more sure word of prophecy. This book here that we have in our hand today. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will, will never pass away. Nations rise and fall, Empires come and go, rivers live and die, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Hallelujah. Amen. So regardless of the situation, tense and dire as it is, unstable as it is, yet we look to this book and we look to these prophecies, and particularly the one in Isaiah that said that the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so he is coming back, and he will rule and reign. And the Middle East one day will have peace. Not yet, but one day, when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will return. So Isaiah 9, and 9 verses 6 and 7 that we read together, sums up the life and ministry of Christ in three words. The cradle, the cross, 
of the crown. Unto us a child is born. There's the cradle. Unto us a son is given. There's the cross. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. There's the crown. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see it more plainly. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. He shall grow up. There's the cradle. Verse 3, here's the cross. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. And then the crown, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. There's the crown. So he came from a cradle and he went to a cross but thank God he's coming with a crown. Aren't you glad for that? The whole life of ministry of Christ summed up in three statements. In Philippians chapter 2, Apostle Paul also highlights this. Chapter 2, Philippians verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. See, there's the cradle. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And here's the cross. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here's the crown. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so let's focus for a few moments this morning, not on the cradle or even on the cross, but on the crown. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His reign shall be sure. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The child was born. The son was given. After thousands of years and hundreds of prophecies, the child was born in Bethlehem and was crucified, given at Calvary. His reign shall be sure. Don't you think that 
all those hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, don't you think that those that have already been fulfilled, that that gives us hope and confidence that those that are yet unfilled will be fulfilled? I think that it does. The government shall be upon his shoulder. So never mind the scoffers that say, where is the promise of his coming? <laughs> never mind the blasphemers and the atheists and the scoffers and the deniers and the unbelievers who mock us and say it's a myth and a fairy tale and a story. It belongs to the dark ages. No. This is the sure word of God. And his reign shall be sure. In Second Peter Second Peter, Hebrews, James, first and second Peter. In chapter three, verse three, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Have we ever lived in a generation where there's been so many scoffers? And because of the a uh, great world of, of media that commands so much of our attention that has become a great platform for the scoffers in this world. The Christ deniers. And so Peter prophesying, knowing first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. When it says there are reserved for fire, I'm reading from the New King James, the authorized version says, kept in store, reserved unto fire. In other words, stored up with fire. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord's return is held in abeyance because of God's mercy to give men opportunity. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells.
Now it's interesting, the terminology that Peter uses. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a highly educated man. Certainly wasn't in any way scientific. And yet the very language he uses here, many say, is a language of nuclear power. Where elements dissolve. Man has got the ability today to split the atom. And cause horrendous bombs to explode. That wipes out hundreds of thousands of people in a moment. Vaporizes people in a moment. And Peter says that the atmosphere, the very heavens, the very air that we breathe is stored up with fire. The world will never perish with another flood. God put a rainbow to remind us of that in the sky. But it will perish with fire. You know, of course, the air we breathe has got different kinds of elements, hasn't it? 78% nitrogen, which is an inert gas. Almost 21% oxygen. And a few trace elements of argon and carbon dioxide and other little things, but just trace elements. And a roughly, roughly 1% water. And water, H2O is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Hydrogen is extremely combustible, flammable. Oxygen in and of itself, they say, isn't. But once it's released into something that is burning, as long as there's oxygen, it'll keep burning and keep burning and keep burning. <clears throat> And somehow or other, all of those elements together are stored up with fire. And one day at God's command, those elements will dissolve. And we see that the heavens will burn with fire and a great noise. And the reason it's a roaring noise. Could this be nuclear? It doesn't have to be. But it sounds mighty like it, doesn't it? In Revelation chapter 6, it gets even more scarier than that. In Revelation, there's three series of judgments that God will send upon the earth. There's sealed judgments, seven of them. There's trumpet judgments, seven of them. There's bowl judgments being poured out, seven of them. Listen to one of these seal judgments, the sixth seal, Revelation 6, verse 12. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken with a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. 
and the kings of the earth, the great men and the rich men and the commanders and the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What a strange statement. The wrath of the Lamb. <laughs> the Lamb doesn't seem very scary, does it? But we're talking here about the Lamb of God. And we're talking about Him not being a Savior, but being a judge here. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? His reign shall be sure. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And kings and nations will bow to him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His reign shall be strong. Government shall be upon his shoulder. Men are burdened with leadership. Look at the world's leaders. You see them growing old before your very eyes. We saw it with Tony Blair. We see it with President Obama. And why wouldn't they grow old before our eyes? How would you like to be in their position? How would you like to be going to bed at night knowing that a decision you're about to make in the morning is going to affect millions, if not billions of people around the world? That will affect whole nations. That's pressure, isn't it? That would make you grow old before your time. That would put gray hairs on you. Say, David, you must be under a lot of pressure because you're white. The government shall be upon his shoulder. In Isaiah chapter 22, it tells... The story of a man called Eliakim. Isaiah 22, verse 20. And it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, <clears throat> excuse me, and strengthen him with your belt. And I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. And he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. <clears throat> Eliakim was going to be like a chamberlain. He was going to be the master of the house of King Hezekiah. And so he would have control and the care, the daily care of King Hezekiah's palace and his house and his surrounds. And part of that official capacity, he would wear a great key upon his shoulder. Remember, in those days, 
gates were either large wooden gates or large iron gates, massive, to the palace or to the other wall that would surround the city. And so large keys were required for large locks. So it wasn't a little bunch of keys hanging around your belt we have today. It was a large wooden or iron key upon his shoulder, signifying that he was in charge, that he held the key to all of his master's house. And so this is an image of Christ. Eliakim is a type of Christ here. And Christ, he's ruler over his household. He has the key, the government, the rulership shall be upon his shoulder. The shoulder speaks of strength, doesn't it? We talk about putting your shoulder to the wind, getting your shoulder into it speaks of strength. And Peter talks about casting all of our care upon him, for he cares for us. The Lord has got broad shoulders. He can take your care. He can take your problem. He can take your worries. He can take your fears, your anxieties, your anxiousness. He can take that, cast it upon him. He cares for you. Why should we carry it? Why should we try to bear it when he can bear it for us? The government shall be upon his shoulder. Have you cast your burden upon him today? Or are you still carrying it? Is it still a big, big, heavy weight upon you? Are you saying, Lord, my shoulders are not strong enough for this. I'm going to cast it upon you. I'm going to give it to you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, he says. That's why you're to come unto him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How little we do that, don't we? We carry it instead of giving it to him. His reign shall be sure. His reign shall be strong. <clears throat> his reign shall be spotless. In verse 7, he says, To order it and establish it with judgment and with justice. No corruption, no injustice. His law is perfect. Can't say that about any government today, sure we can't. Can't say it even about any ruler today. As much as we trust, and as much as we vote for, and as much as we hope against hope. But what happens? When they come into power, very often the power uh, becomes something that corrupts in ethics. And honesty goes out the window. Sad. No wonder people are disillusioned by politics. No wonder Britain today, fewer folk are voting than ever before. Because they said, well, what are you going to vote for? I'm sure they're all the same. As soon as they get in. Isn't that what we say? But we'll never be able to say that about Christ. <laughs> his judgment and His rule will be right and it will be fair and be equitable. <clears throat> In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. <laughs> the Lord, the righteous judge. We can trust the Lord for righteous judgment, can't we? 
Because sometimes we feel we haven't had a fair shake. Eh? We've been treated unjustly, unfairly. And oftentimes we are. But we never could accuse the Lord of that. His judgments will always be just and always be fair and always be right. In John chapter 5, John's Gospel chapter 5. Verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now we read this scripture last week in another context. But note here, I didn't say this last week. Notice here, he has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. We spoke much last week about Jesus being the Son of God, but his favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. And so he can execute perfect judgment not just because he's the Son of God, but because he's the Son of Man. Because he's lived in this world. And because he knows what injustice is like and unfairness. He knows what being lied about is like. He knows about what your reputation being destroyed is like. He knows all of that. He's been in this world. He's been through all of that. So he can make a righteous judgment. He knows exactly how we feel. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing of myself as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. Acts 17. The Apostle Paul in Athens. Well, we should read a little bit before that. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your prophets have said, for since we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, 
but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given him assurance of this, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And so we see here that his reign shall be sure, his reign shall be strong, his reign shall be absolutely spotless. And then finally, his reign shall be splendid of the increase of his government. There shall be no end. In Daniel chapter 2, we have the account of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's lying in his bed one evening couldn't sleep, was restless. And he had a dream. He got up the next morning, couldn't remember the dream. It really irked him. And so he called all his magicians, his astrologers, his wise men, his prognosticators, called them all and said, I had a dream last night. I need the interpretation but I can't remember the dream. And they said, O king, live forever. Tell us the dream. We'll tell you interpretation. They said, you're playing for time. If you don't tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'll cut you in pieces and I'll make your houses dunghills. He wasn't in a very good mood, was he? He was a bit grumpy that morning, wasn't he? So they said again, he said, king, this is a hard thing you've asked. No king has ever asked any astrologers this. But if you tell us the dream, we'll give you interpretation. He says, I know your plan for time. I need you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And they couldn't do it. So he sent out the order to begin to kill all of his astrologers and all of his so-called wise men. Daniel and the three Hebrew boys heard about this. They were highly favored. They were counted as wise men. So they knew they would be for the chop too. But Daniel sent word and says, King, there's a God in heaven who interprets dreams. I'll give you the interpretation. So he said to his three mates, said, we need to pray. We need to get an answer. So they prayed. And God gave the dream. And God gave the interpretation. And here's what Daniel said. King answered and said to Daniel, verse 26, whose name is Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who revealed secrets. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. 
and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes, who made known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you watch while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet and iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer's threshing floors." The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Now, this image he had was of nations and empires. And the head of gold was his, the Babylonian one. The chest and arms of silver was the Medo-Persian empire. The two legs was the Roman Empire separated at one point east and west. The feet, the clay and the iron mixed together is the revised Roman Empire which is yet to be. Which is the empire of the Antichrist. Which will be the last empire before Christ returns. And it's not hard to see then that the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. In verse 45, insomuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. And that speaks of Christ and his kingdom that will come and smash Antichrist's kingdom and all of those kingdoms that has passed and that kingdom that is to come all of those great kingdoms are gone into the dustbin of history they're no longer great world empires Egypt is just a shadow of what it used to be by the way and the Roman Empire of course is only a shadow isn't it but Christ will come the stone cut out without hands supernaturally And his kingdom will strike the Antichrist kingdom and destroy it. And Christ's kingdom will become a great mountain that will fill the whole earth. And so we see here that his reign shall be splendid. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Jesus said, all authority... And all power has been given unto me in heaven and on the earth. So whenever we think today Christmas is coming and we look at our cards and we sing our carols and we think of the cradle. Let's look beyond the cradle and let's see not only a cross but a crown. Because he's been to the cradle and he's been to the cross and he's coming back with the crown. 
We'll finish with this in Revelation chapter 5. Verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them is ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and forever. And chapter 7. Verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lord clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and forever. Amen. And finally, in Revelation 21, right towards the end. Verse 22, speaking about the glory of the New Jerusalem. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and their honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall they, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Huh. What a mighty king we serve. What a great Lord. Yes, he came as a helpless little baby. Yes, as a man in his full strength and power, he went to that old rugged cross to die for each of us. But thank God, he's coming back in great glory. And the whole earth will worship him one day. And the nations of the earth will come to the new Jerusalem and they'll bow down before him and acknowledge that he's King of kings and he's Lord of lords. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it great, the Lord that we serve today? He's not a weak, anemic, sissy picture that we get, but he's a mighty king. He's coming back for the saints of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we have taken these moments this morning just to lift you up and to glorify you and to give you your rightful and honorable place because you are the Lord of all glory.
So Lord, let the blasphemers and the scoffers and the deniers, let them have their say. But at the end, you will speak the word. At the end, you will have your say. And man will be speechless in your presence. And so we thank you today for who you are. We thank you for coming to that cradle and for going to that cross. And we thank you for coming back with a crown. And now, Lord, at the close of this service, we take these moments to remind ourselves of the cost of the price that you paid for our salvation. We thank you that you gave your life for us. You gave your own precious blood for us. And we thank you for it. We thank you for forgiveness today, for mercy today, for your great love wherewith you loved us. And so, Lord, we have put our trust in you as our Savior and as our Lord. And as we come before this table to break bread together, remind us, Lord, of the price that you paid. May we ever be grateful and never forgetful. Lord, may we never stray or wander from the cross, but keep it in full view. We give you thanks. Those who are serving, if you could come, please.